I hope that you'll turn with me in a Bible to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. During this Advent season, we're going to be looking at a particular kind of psalm, usually known as a royal psalm, a psalm that is aimed at describing the relationship between God and his king. And while each of these psalms was originally directed at the line of David, Israel's greatest king, in each case we can see how they reach beyond, they point beyond an earthly kingdom. There are none of David's sons who seem to perfectly fulfill what we read here, except one, the one we know as Jesus Christ. He perfectly fulfills what is promised in these royal psalms. And in Psalm 2, we see that the problem of a polarized world, a divided world filled with hostility and anger, is not a new problem. And we see that the source of hope, the basis for hope, is the same now in 2021 as it was back then when King David wrote these words. We have just as much need for hope now as then, and God is just as faithful now as he was then in pointing us to the source of true hope. But while there's this division in the Scripture, and while there's this division among people now, and there's this craving for hope, we need to know what it is that hold us together, and we are all united in at least one thing, in at least one thing, and that one thing is a craving, a desire, a longing for heavenly life. Even people who don't believe in heaven as a reality or place still have this craving. It just takes a different form. It's a desire for the world to be a better place, for there to be peace on earth, for there to be goodwill toward men. Surely we can do better than this, is crying out in every human heart. Surely there must be more to life in this world than this. Surely we can improve. Surely we can do better. This desire, craving for heavenly life given by our Creator. But what we see in Psalm 2 and what we need to know in the year of our Lord 2021 is that this desire cannot be satisfied by anything on earth. Try as we might. No matter how hard we look, no matter how united we might be in our efforts to try to improve the world and make it a better place, it won't really satisfy this longing. We can do great things. We can certainly improve. To be sure, we can. But this deep-seated longing in your heart 
and in my heart for heavenly life. This hope for heavenly life cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. So don't look to anything on earth. Don't look to anything on earth, no matter how good, no matter how true, no matter how beautiful, to satisfy your hope for heavenly life. But we're all tempted to, aren't we? To pin our hopes, to try to satisfy this desire by something, anything, in this world and earth. But it won't work. It won't satisfy. The only thing that will is looking, looking to the one who came from heaven to earth to give us this heavenly life, to be born as one of us, to live like one of us, and to die as we all will. And yet, who was raised to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, to give us heavenly life, eternal life, abundant life. That's real hope. Are you enjoying that hope this Advent as we move into Christmas 2021? Is that hope visible and evident in your heart? Let's turn to Psalm 2 to see how we can look to the one who came from heaven to earth, to the source of true and lasting hope. In verse 1, we read, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the means to having this sure and eternal hope, this hope that will satisfy your craving, your desire for heavenly life, what's the means to receiving it? A kiss. 
the kiss of life. And what we're going to see is that this is the only wise option in this world. It's the wisest thing anyone could possibly do, is to kiss the sun. Now that sounds odd to us, but let's see how in the world there could be infinite wisdom in that. In Psalm 2, we have four stanzas. It's structured around four stanzas, three verses in each stanza. And so we begin by looking at verses 1 to 3. And what we see in verses 1 to 3 is earthly opposition against heaven. Earthly opposition against heaven. David, speaking ironically, says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? In other words, why do they bother fighting against heaven? Fighting against the king of heaven. And yet they do. They conspire. They plot. And this word for plot, it's the same word that you see in Psalm 1 verse 2. Describing the one who meditates on God's law day and night. Meditates, plans, fixates, obsesses even over the law of God. Well, the nations, the peoples, everyone, in other words, you, me, we all are guilty of this, of conspiring, of plotting, meditating, planning, obsessing, but all in vain. All in vain. And what we see is this isn't just misguided, this isn't just wrong, it is sheer insanity. It is nothing less then sheer insanity is madness. It's crazy. It's delusional. And it's you and it's me. This is what we do. He said, no, 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 no. I, I'm not conspiring against heaven. Well, let's look at what they're doing. We read that the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. So, Their opposition is directed against God, the Lord, and against his anointed, his Messiah. Speaking on the earthly plane and the earthly level, meaning David and the descendants of David. But ultimately speaking of the Messiah, capital M, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, come in human flesh, come as one of us. His anointed. Speaking, of course, of the anointing with oil that took place whenever a king was coronated in Israel against the Lord. They're opposing the Lord. They're opposing His chosen and anointed king. And how are they opposing? They're saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. What are these chains and shackles? These cords, these bands. What they're throwing off are the restraining influences that God 
has put in place to limit and to contain evil and sinfulness. And it takes at least three forms. One is government. This is aimed at kings, rulers, leaders, and government. Even the most tyrannical government, even the most abusive and oppressive government can be used to limit and to restrain human wrongdoing and lawlessness. Any government is better than anarchy. And it's given by God, established by God, to limit and to restrain what is wrong in the world. It also takes the form of conscience, of our innate God-given sense of what is right and wrong. And while our consciences are confused, twisted even, by our own sinfulness, we still have a conscience. You have a conscience. And then the third form is God's law, his moral commands, summarized in what we call the Ten Commandments, and summarized even more by the Lord Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God's moral commands. Well, why would we oppose that? Because you and I, as sinners, don't really know what's good for us. And we think that if we can unshackle ourselves from these chains, if we can follow the desires of our own hearts, if we can do what looks good and seems good and feels good to us, we'll be liberated. We don't need God. We, need, we want to be free. We don't want His laws. We don't want His commands. We can do whatever we want to do. And that rebellion, whether you care to admit it or not, is present in you and in me. And that's why this is such an accurate description of the present state of the world. The nations conspire. They're raging. And the imagery is of the sea churned up by the wind. Raging, fighting, kicking. All against the Lord and against His anointed. Does this not resonate with the present state of the world? Oh, but they're united in this. They, they conspire together. They, they plot together. They say, let us. Come on, let us. We, if, if we all just join together, then we can fix it. We can save ourselves. We don't need God. And you could see this kind of delusional thinking just in the 20th century, after the First World War. People legitimately thought, they literally thought, if we can concoct this League of Nations, there will be no more war. It's peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. We can do it. And while I'm not judging their efforts, I'm not saying that that was wrong to do, in and of itself, it is wrong insofar as we treat that like it's the ultimate answer. Because even if all wars ceased, 
do you realize it wouldn't really fix what is fundamentally wrong with you and me? Because what is fundamentally wrong with you and me is in our hearts. Our hearts are desperately sick because in our hearts, we're rebelling against God. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to listen to him. We don't want to do what he says. We see God as as a killjoy, someone who's there to limit, to keep us from real happiness. We want to be rid of that. Depression. And God is seen as a tyrant. But what happened after all this fanciful, idealistic thinking following the First World War? World War II happened in short order. Just pointing out how delusional this kind of thinking is. If we can just get God out of the equation, get God out of the world, get God out of our lives, and if we just work together, we can fix it. And people don't want to call it heaven, of course, but we can create utopia. Finally. And and this craving for heavenly life, some improved world will be satisfied. But David says, this is all in vain. This is all in vain. Why do they bother? Don't they know who they're fighting against? This is insanity. And it's insanity more specifically on two grounds. The first is that God's Commandments, these chains, these shackles, so-called, are aimed at your good and my good and his glory. We don't know what is truly good for ourselves. So this is crazy. This is insanity. It's like the stereotypical man who gets something he needs to assemble. And this is me. This is me. And you see that big old thick manual, those instructions, and you think, oh, I don't have time for that. I have a brain. I have common sense. I can kind of look at the shapes of these things. I I got this. I can figure this out. I, I can just intuit how to put this thing together. And maybe you're successful at that. I never have been. At some point, one way or another, I find myself having to go back to that manual, to those instructions. Well, we're living in a world that is operating under the delusional thinking that we don't need the instruction manual. We don't need God's law. We don't need his word. But do you see how crazy that is? Just take some time this afternoon, maybe. Go to Exodus 20. Read the Ten Commandments. And ask yourself, Would the world not be a better place if more people actually obeyed God's moral law? Is it really that oppressive? Doesn't it seem that these laws, these commandments, are aimed at helping us love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves? Oh, but we we don't need all that. No, we can rely on our intuition. And do you see the the arrogance of human pride and human thinking? And this is you and it's me to one degree or another. 
This is our present state of affairs. But it's insanity for a second reason. And that second reason is that we're resisting heaven and the God of heaven. You're fighting against God. And you don't have to read very far in the Bible to see that just never ends well. It just doesn't. And while you may think that you're succeeding temporarily, ultimately it won't work. There is nothing and there is no one who can derail the God who rules over our lives in this world with sovereign and unrivaled power. But this is the insanity of life in this world. We oppose heaven. But when we move into verse 4, the scene shifts. Now we gain heavenly perspective on what's going on. The nations are raging, they're conspiring, they're plotting. And what's happening in heaven? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Wait, wait, wait. God laughs? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You don't need to know Hebrew to be able to understand what this says. He laughs. He looks down upon them with derision. He scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. He laughs. <laughs> what are they doing? Oh, the, the foolishness, foolishness. Why would they live with delusional thinking? Why would they, they live with this insanity when I've given them the manual? I've made myself known to them. I've, I've been perfectly clear with them. And yet they choose their own way and they think that I'm a tyrant. <laughs> wow. Wow. How far off course can they go? And he rebukes them and he terrifies them in his wrath. Now many, of course, don't believe they have anything to fear from God's wrath. It's all just a cartoon made up to scare people. It's just something to, to get people to be good and upright citizens. We don't really have to fear God's wrath. It's just something to scare children. But what you need to know is that God's wrath is being revealed right now. And this is the heavenly judgment upon the earth. Heavenly judgment upon the earth. And you say, okay, where are the thunderbolts? Where's the lightning? Where's this wrath? I don't see it. We go to Romans, the book of Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, the wrath of God is being poured out upon the earth right now. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. And it doesn't look like lightning or thunder. It doesn't look like Sodom and Gomorrah, the stereotype of what it looks like when God's wrath comes down. It looks like this. People doing what people want to do. God giving them over to their own self-centered and selfish desires. 
That's the wrath of God on display right now. Now, will there come a day when there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when there will be torment? Yes, yes, there will be. But right now, the wrath of God takes the form of letting you and letting me go our own way. You want to go that way? You want to see what that feels like? You want to see the misery that results from that choice? Go ahead. Go ahead. You want to throw my commandments overboard? You want to throw the map away? You want to find your own way? You want to rely on your own instincts? Go ahead. Go ahead. But what does God do? He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I have fixed my king. He is in place on Zion. And while when this psalm is written, this refers to Jerusalem, to the temple of, of God, his visible manifestation of his presence on earth, that's long gone. And the Lord Jesus has shown us that now, his rule is seen in his people and through his people. This is Zion. Anyone who trusts in his king, anyone who says Jesus is Lord, anyone who says I'm not going to follow the conspiracies and the plotting of this world, this is Zion. Look around you. This is Zion. This is God exercising his rule among his people. Right now, as he says, we have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Hebrews 12, verse 18. That is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard them, heard them begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is Zion. This is God exercising his rule on earth. And the world will scoff at it, the world will look down upon us. They will have a condescending posture toward us. But we believe that the God who rules from heaven has established, he has installed his king. And we know it because he's ruling in our hearts. And we want that manual. We want the rule book. We want the map. We want his guidance. We want his commandments. And we know we are most free when we are most surrendered to Him. Is that you today? Hear the Lord's decree. Hear His promise in verse 7. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. We see the heavenly conquest across the earth. Right now, the king, the one who is decreed by God to rule is spreading 
his kingdom across the earth. And while it has not come fully, we do pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The heavenly conquest across the earth. Spreading, growing, even when it looks like just a mustard seed. You can barely see it. And people say, that's where you're putting your hope? That's what you're trusting in? You think that's going to save you? You think that's going to deliver you? And we say yes. Because we've seen what God can do with a mustard seed. We've seen what God can do in a dead sinner like us. That He can bring His King to reign in a sinful, rebellious heart like mine and like yours. Now, in fulfilling these words, Jesus, we need to say, was the Son from eternity. Fully God. Sharing the Father's attributes perfectly. Infinite power. Infinite wisdom. Infinite holiness. But when He came to be born as one of us, to be baptized as one of us, the voice of heaven said, this is my Son. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Look to Him. Don't look for anything in this world to satisfy your desire for heavenly life. Don't look for your hope in anything in this world. Look to Him. Listen to Him. He's my Son declared openly and fully to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you know Him? Because He is the one who will break them, break the nations with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. His conquest, one way or another, there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And your knee will either bow willingly or unwillingly. Because while He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, He is the Lion of Judah. And He roars against sinfulness and evil like a lion. And your view of Jesus is not complete until you have a proper reverence, a proper fear for His judgment against your own sinfulness. Look at what he's capable of doing. To resist him is insanity. It's crazy. It's delusional. So what is wisdom? In verses 10 to 12, we see heavenly wisdom offered to the earth. Heavenly wisdom offered to the earth. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry. Exercise wisdom. Enough of the craziness, enough of the insanity, enough of the delusional thinking. Serve him, look to him with fear, with trembling, 
We've lost the fear of God today. I'm sorry to say. We have lost the fear of God. There's not enough trembling before Him. Well, yes, we are to celebrate. We are to be joyful. We need to remember that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And it has nothing to do with your intelligence. It has everything to do with what you say about God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But true wisdom is seen in kissing the Son, acknowledging God's path to mercy and life, heavenly life that can be enjoyed by you and by me now on earth. But are you willing to kiss his son? Are you willing to kiss his son? What does this mean? How how are we supposed to kiss Jesus now? Well, we can illustrate it with an incident in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is eating at the home of a Pharisee, and in the midst of the meal, to everyone's astonishment, there's a woman that that comes out, and she's known by everyone to be a sinful woman. Her reputation precedes her in the worst possible way, and she starts getting down on the floor, goes to the feet of Jesus, and starts pouring the most expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus weeping over his feet, wiping his feet with her hair, and kissing his feet. And the host says, what are you thinking? Don't you know her? And of course he's thinking, I I wish she would be gone. That's not the kind of company I like to keep in my household. And what is Jesus' response? He tells a parable first. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon the Pharisee answers correctly. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You do not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So what keeps us from kissing the Son? What keeps us from acknowledging His power, His authority, His Lordship in our lives? It's the pride that we see in Simon the Pharisee. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to debase myself by doing that. I'm not like her. I don't have that much to be forgiven of. I mean, I'm a basically good person. I'm not like those people out there. Oh, the the danger, the arrogance. Or are you like the woman who knows you have much to be forgiven for and there is no one who can forgive you other than Jesus. And that's why he came 
And if your, your heart desires to be forgiven, if you come to Him for forgiveness, He will never turn you away. He will receive you. And you will receive a love. You will know a love. You will know a fellowship and a joy that will exceed your wildest dreams. But are you willing to kiss Him? Say, Jesus, You're my only hope. I am lost. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm desperate. I'm lost. I deserve hell. Except for You. Now, some don't like to think, if I don't kiss him, he's angry? Seems to have a pretty short fuse. Well, how can he not be angry when you have refused his offer of love? You have spurned, you've rejected the love that he's offered to a sinner like you. How could he not be angry? It would be wrong for him not to be. It would be wrong for him not to pass judgment on you and condemn you to eternal death for what you have done with what He has given, His offer of mercy, you've spit upon it. So be warned. Be warned. The window of mercy and forgiveness is open wide to you now. Kiss the Son now. Recognize Jesus now. Confess His Lordship now. Because the window will not stay open forever. And His wrath, His anger can flare up in a moment. That woman's not the only person who kisses Jesus. Can you think of another? Judas. Oh, yes. Some will kiss Jesus out of betrayal. As Jesus is being arrested, Judas, the betrayer for 30 pieces of silver, goes to him and identifies him with a kiss. With a kiss. Hello, Rabbi. And Jesus says, will you betray me with a kiss? Now you say, I'm no Judas. I would never do that. Well, maybe not outwardly. Maybe not explicitly. But in your heart, when you say, I know that's what God wants me to do. I know that's what Scripture says. But I don't like that. I'm not going to do that. You, in effect, are betraying Jesus with a kiss. And you stand just as condemned before a holy God. So be wise. Enough of the insanity. Enough of the delusional thinking. Be wise. Kiss His Son. Yield. Submit. Surrender to Jesus before time's out. And you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. Just cry out to Him right where you are. Look to Him and say, Jesus, I have no hope. I have no life. I can't enjoy heaven apart from you. You're my only answer. I have no mercy. I have no pardon. I have no forgiveness apart from you. Pray it right where you are. And he will never turn you away. He will never turn you away. Call out to him. Seek him while he may be found. Be wise. Be wise. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Enjoy the blessedness of all who take refuge in Him. Are you enjoying that blessedness? Is there happiness? Is there joy as you find refuge in Him? You say, yes, whatever happens to me in this, in this fallen earth, whatever this world sends my way, no matter what happens to me or my loved ones, I am blessed 
because I take refuge in Him, and in Him, this world can't touch me. May you enjoy that blessing this Advent season as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for making the options before us so plain, so clear. In our sinfulness, we want to say it just can't be that simple. It can't be so black and white. But Father, you remind us over and over and over and over again that it is. It's all about Jesus. So Father, I pray that you would protect us from trifling with Jesus, from turning the other way, from betraying him, from minimizing who he is and what he came to do. Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would all confess Jesus as Lord and that he would be our all in all today and forever. All for your glory and honor. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.